I, I'm, I want to ask you actually two questions, and I want you to think about this for a moment. What is the greatest day in your life? What is it? Was it the day that uh, maybe you graduated, for those who were younger? Maybe it was the day where someone said that they loved you? Maybe it was the day where you got your first job, or maybe it was the fa- day you found out you, were, you got into college, or maybe for some of those folks that are more of our in- from our international background, maybe it's the day that you found out you were coming to the United States. Or maybe it was the day when you found out that you were going to be a parent. Maybe you, you, it was the day where you saw that child for the first time. What is it? What was the greatest day of your life? And I want you to think about that for a moment, and I want you to kind of do and uh, go to the opposite end. What was the worst day in your life? What was the worst, absolute worst day? Was it the day where you found out maybe that one of your loved ones was sick and was going to die, or maybe that they had died? Was it the day you got fired from a job? Maybe it was the day where your spouse said, I don't love you anymore and I'm leaving. Uh, maybe it was the day that you found out that your, your child had done some, some evil of some type. What, what is it? You know, and I think of uh, the worst day of our lives, and I think of the best day of your lives. I can't but help think of what the last three days were like for the apostles. They went from the absolute worst day. I mean, Peter was just saying it. When, you know, the, the time where he was recalling where Jesus called him the devil. That, has, that can't be a good day. And then it went from the absolute worst day to the absolute best day in just three days. I mean, what a transformation. And as I, I think about what happened some 2,000 years ago, I think that we underemphasize and, and don't really understand or grasp what happened that day. That from a historical perspective, that it is the greatest day in the history of the world. Matter of fact, you can take every other day, every holiday, every great event of your life, compile it with every other person's greatest event in their life, and every, whatever holiday that you want to think of and pile them up, and it would just be like a grain of sand in comparison to how great the resurrection day is. Because that's, that's a day that's different than any other day in the world. I mean, we talk often uh, about Christmas, and we all get geared up for Christmas. And as we just learned, though, Christmas wasn't necessarily celebrated among the early church. Matter of fact, only two of the Gospels really refer to it. And that's Matthew and Luke. Mark actually begins his Gospel with the baptism of John. And John has a totally different perspective. He is focusing on the cosmic Christ in the four Gospels. So we see, though, that each, though, one of the Gospels spent a great deal of time. Matter of fact, two-thirds of the Gospels, out of those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, devote two-thirds of their time to talking about the last week of Jesus' life, and especially about the crucifixion, death, and then the resurrection. Because, see, if we just have the crucifixion, then we have a good man who died. We have a martyr for a cause that people weep over. But it's just like any other death of a good man. It might be remembered fondly. But it's the resurrection that validates everything about his life and transforms us. As a matter of fact, it caused so much controversy among the early church. Because you remember, Christianity didn't start off as Christianity. It actually started off as a segment or sect of Judaism. And it was the resurrection that set it apart from everything else. And as one church, uh, major church figure, a guy by the name of Martin Luther said that that the resurrection is the hinge upon which the door of Christianity turns. And it's very true. And we underemphasize what happened that day and what it means. 
But I hope to show us today that it was the greatest day in the history of the world. And you know what? It can be your greatest day. That'll be greater than any other day that you could ever experience. It'll be greater than the day that you got married or when you will get married. It will be greater than the day that you have children. It'll be greater than any other day piled on top of one another. And it can be your greatest day because when we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, there's a transformation that occurs, a reorientation of our life that transforms us from the inside out. So today, I want to show us that this day has been around for over 2,000 years and it's celebrated all over the world. But moreover, I want to show us all how this day can be made our greatest day. But first, it takes doing some analyzing, looking at what this text means and what it means to us. And hopefully, depending on how we answer these questions we're about to explore together, we will enter into that excitement. Are we ready for that? Jump in together and study this passage together. So please turn with me if John 20, if you haven't already. If not, look off someone else or just listen in as much as you can. But before we go any further, let's stop and pray for a moment, asking God to bless our time together. God, we come into your presence right now by the mighty name, blood, and finished work of Jesus Christ. And today we ask you to speak to us, to help us understand what this day really means. And not just to us as, as a church but to us as humans. Help us to understand how to apply this to each one of us and how we are to live in light of it or respond to it. So Lord, open up closed minds, hurting hearts, and touch us by the grace that is afforded to us by your Spirit through the proclamation of your Word. Glorify your name in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to set the stage for us a little bit. We have this tendency to think that the Bible characters are so far removed from us. And the reality is, is they were just like you and I. These guys didn't walk around with halos all the time. They didn't float in garments of white, that they smelled, that they had bad breath. They had bad days, bad attitudes. They, sometimes they didn't get along with one another. They were, they were dealing with similar questions and problems with family and daily pressures. They were just like you and I. And, and so they were fearful. The, the disciples, if you remember, uh, had walked with Jesus for about three years. And they just had a whirlwind weekend, man. It was crazy. On, on just a week ago, they had come into Jerusalem for a time of a feast. All these pilgrims from, pilgrims from all over Jerusalem had come to celebrate and come into town to celebrate the Passover. And that's when Jesus came in, remember? And they were coming out with palm branches saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the word Hosanna means save now. And they were using these palm branches, kind of like flags that we would use at a parade. It was a symbol of Jewish nationalism. And they're saying, he's the king. He's the one we're expecting. He's the one that's been foretold. He's the one that's going to come and liberate us from the horrid Roman occupiers who won't let us practice our faith in its purity and its entirety. And so they, were, they had just been on cloud nine. I mean, it was an amazing time. But they were also just wondering how things could go f- badly so fast? How could they be from, go from first to worst? I mean, it, it seemed just like yesterday, at the beginning of the week, they were, they were just patting one another on the back. And now, now, according to our text, they're hiding out in this upper room with the doors locked because they're afraid of the Jewish people. Because see, what happened is that many of the Jews, especially this ruling group of Jews known as the Sanhedrin, didn't like the press that Jesus was getting. And Jesus was a threat to their kingdom, if you will. And so they, they had him arrested, 
tried in a kangaroo court. He was convicted in their mind, even though there was no evidence to prove that he was guilty. He was whipped, scourged. Then he was led off to be crucified, which was a criminal's death. I mean, it was a horrendous way to die. Even the word excruciating, the word means out of the cross. It, they had to create a word to describe what happened to a person on the cross. And Jesus had been whipped. He'd been scourged. The flesh had been torn from his back. He'd had a crown of thorns that was jammed on his head. They mocked him, stripped him naked. He didn't have a loincloth on. Most people, we do that just for modesty's sake when we portray it. But they wanted the full extent of shame and humiliation to be brought out. And that's what they did. And he was humiliated. I mean, he was beaten beyond recognition, almost. And then, and the way that the person would die, by the way, was to be on the cross, and it would be from asphyxiation. They would have a hard time breathing, and they would have the arms pulled out so hard, and then the legs pulled out that it had, one had to rise up to get breath. And the, how they would kill them eventually is, and this is why they would go and break their legs so they couldn't lift up anymore to breathe, and they would just die because they couldn't breathe, they couldn't get air. It was, it was an awful way to die. And the disciples were weeping. I mean, if they could get to Jesus, they were associated with Jesus. They're next. So Jesus is buried, and they're hiding out, and they're just processing what just happened. I mean, the shades are drawn, doors are locked, everybody's quiet, no one wants to talk, there's no laughter going on. These people are freaked out. You ever had a time where you're just freaked out, you don't want to talk to anybody, you just want to be withdrawn from the world? And here they are going, what, what happened? I mean, and not only did Jesus die, but one of their own. Judas, the guy who was the treasurer, betrayed him. They, they weren't expecting that. I mean, and now Judas was dead. He went and hanged himself. What, what was going to happen to them? And that's, that's where we come upon this passage. And we have the ten remaining disciples. Remember, Judas is dead, and Thomas, we learn, is not there. And the ten disciples are locked in this upper room when we look at verse 24. It says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, also called the twin, he was a twin, uh, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now before we even get to that, I want to actually back up just for a moment and see what had occurred there. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They're afraid the Jews are going to get to them and take them out and they're next. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. You ever had someone surprise you when you weren't ready? You ever had that happen? Where someone jumps out behind a doorway and you're like, ah! You ever had that? I mean, now imagine someone that you thought was dead is there. I'm imagining some of them tripping over tables, running over one another. I could see someone running into a wall. I, I, I'm sure this freaked them out. I mean, they are jumping over one another and they, they are astonished. Like, what? Like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? He's real. I mean, think about it. All the reactions, because remember, they're human. Just like we are. All the reactions that we would have had, they would have had. And they are freaked out to see Jesus, because they knew. They're not stupid. We have this tendency to think people in the ancient world didn't understand basic items of human uh, physiology. They understood what dead was. They understood that he was dead. This wasn't a mystery to them. He was dead. Matter of fact, when that spear pierced his side and it came out blood and water, that was an indication that the heart had stopped working. So they knew that he was dead. And then Jesus says, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the, and the disciples 
Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. And we could spend a lot of time on that, but I actually want to spring in to verse 24 for today. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas wasn't an idiot. Thomas understood. He's like, okay, I don't know what happened with you guys, but let me tell you, I was there just with you, and I saw he was dead. And you guys might forget basics of of what a dead person looks like, but he was dead. He's dead. He's gone. You guys are delusional. And you know what? I, unless you can show it, I want it right here in front of my face. I want to put my fingers in those nail prints. I want to put my, plunge my finger. In the world, literally in Greek, it's plunge in. I want to really feel it to see if he's there, okay? That's, that's my challenge. So you know, each one of us has a challenge before us when it comes to Jesus. And, if, and for the resurrection day to become our greatest day, then we have to meet and answer this challenge that is before us. And first of all, the challenge that's before us is this, the chance that we all missed. Now, Pete, remember, Thomas wasn't there, so he missed that opportunity with everyone else. Now, for each one of us, we can't be there either. We can't go back in time. We don't have a DeLorean that can reach the 1.21 gigawatts to go back to the time of Jesus. We don't have that. We can't go back in time. So we are forced into, how do we deal with this understanding? I mean, Thomas missed his chance, his opportunity. But for us, we, haven't, we might have missed seeing him physically, but we see a testimony about him within his word. And we have to understand that the Bible is the c- compilation of all eyewitness testimony of those who see him and walked with him. And it wasn't just one, two, three, or even 12. There was one time where he appeared in front of a crowd of 500 And so we have to understand, what is that missed opportunity for us? It's that we weren't there either, but we can go back and see what he has for us in his word. And Jesus says this about us in verse 29. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We are those who have not seen. Many of us in this room are those who have believed. Because we see that this word of God was written for our benefit so that we might have life in his name. Look at verse 30 of John chapter 20, where John, by the Spirit, writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. See, each one of us missed the opportunity or that chance to see, but we can still believe based on the testimony of those who went before us. But there are other challenges that still remain, such as this the conviction we see in others. The conviction we see in others. That's the second point that you can write down. I mean, that's a challenge for each one of us, especially those of us who don't believe that are here today, and we're glad that you're here today. But you have to deal with this because, see, Thomas is encountering 10 other people that are testifying about the same thing. And he's seeing the conviction in them. I don't know if you've ever seen someone that can, is convicted and believes something so wholeheartedly, but it's something else when there's a group of people that are all very smart people. They don't act crazy. I mean, sometimes we meet people that are a little crazy in how they share things. They got these crazy eyes. You need to know Jesus. And it's like, well, I, 
I don't know if you know Jesus. Right now, I want to see Jesus because you freak me out. Okay, we have that. We have some people that talk just a little crazy. And they, they, they portray themselves as Christian, but yet it seems like they're strange Christians. But I'm sure it was strange even to Thomas as he's dealing with this. Wait a minute. All of you are testifying about the same thing. Just be quiet for a minute. But you have to deal with that. See, when we see other people that have this joy about who Jesus is, and we see that change in their life, and it causes us to stop and go, what does that mean for me? See, we can see that God does change, just as we saw within, within Deb's testimony. Isn't that amazing? When God is changing her life, and, and many in this room can testify to that same truth, that they've been delivered, or they're learning how to die to their sinful nature and put it to death as they live in this new life that they have in Christ. So we have to learn these things. We have to grow in our understandings of that. But yet we have to deal with the conviction that we see in others. And they are testifying that they had seen the Lord. And in his mind, these weren't delusional people. They were his friends. And for us, we've undoubtedly come across someone who may we, who, who, um, not have seen and walked with Jesus, but whose conviction seems to be just as sure as theirs was. Their lives have been changed. And that makes us stop and go, what would cause such a change to happen in their life? That's a challenge that each one of us must face. And not only that, the third challenge we have to overcome is the cynicism in our own hearts. The cynicism of our own hearts. Look at verse 25. Peter lays it down. He's, he's not a cynic as much as he is a realist. And he says here, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He was a realist, just like any of us would be. Any of us should be. I mean, you don't just believe it because someone says it. You want to see and understand it. And for him, he really want to understand it. He'd been with Jesus. And he's got a cynicism in his own heart. And each one of us has a cynicism when we approach God. Is he really God? Did he really speak to the Bible? Does he really speak to our lives? Does he really want obedience from me? Can he really change my life? Can he really give me peace? Can he really give me purpose? Can I really change and break free of this? Can I really be a new creation in Christ? Can he, is he really the son of God? You know, I think of Larry King, the great interviewer, and, uh, that he uh, was talking to a Christian apologist who was friends with Ravi Zacharias, and he said, uh, they asked him a question. He said, you know, if there's one question that I could ask anybody in all time, he said, I, and I present this to Ravi, did God really have a son? This is Larry King, Jewish Larry King. He goes, because if he did, that would define history for me. Because there's something different about him, different than any other person on the face of the planet, and yet there's a cynicism that remains in our own hearts. But here's the thing. When we encounter this cynicism, we have to understand the next step because there's a challenge that's even greater than the cynicism in his own heart. And the biggest challenge before Thomas was not the chance he missed or the conviction he saw in other people, but it was the Christ that stood before him. See, that's the biggest challenge that each person must, must face. Not that Jesus literally stands before each one of us, but he spiritually does and says, who do you say that I am? He's a challenge that he towers over every, every other figure in history. 
And he can't be ignored. He can't be written off. He's not Buddha. He's not Muhammad. He is not uh, any other type of prophet. He is not any great uh, scholar. I mean, all of the figures of history, Napoleon, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Saladin, whatever it might be, Charlemagne, all of them come together and they must be stacked up because there's something different about Jesus than any other figure that has ever lived in the history of the world. He is completely different. And that's what Peter, Jesus presents before Thomas. I am different, Peter. I'm different, excuse me, Thomas. I mean, what was Thomas to do? What was he to say? His Lord was right there in front of him. And for us, it's a bit different. We don't have that benefit, but we still have it proclaimed to each one of our hearts. What do we do with who Jesus is? We could ignore him and just go on. It's just like you do when you get your, your oil light comes on and you decide to ignore it. What's going to happen eventually if you don't take care of it? Your engine's going to go out. See, the, the reality is you can't ignore Jesus for very long. Matter of fact, he's so much greater than an oil change. You can't ignore him. You ignore him at your own detriment. You can say, it's not that big a deal. I'm just going to go on with my life. I'm going to live it the way I've always done. That's great for you. It doesn't necessarily apply to me. See, that's where you're wrong. Jesus is in a different category altogether. He stands before us and says, who do you say I am? Because the claims about him are sensational. And he was not just any other man. He was not just a prophet or a priest, but God incarnate who did many miracles that were seen and substantiated by so many. He claimed to be God. Or when the claims came to him, he didn't deny them. He claimed to be able to forgive sins and to be the Savior of the world, the Messiah who had been foretold for thousands of years. And if that is true, then we must deal with him. Now, how do we do that? Here are our options that I'd like to walk through. First of all, you have choices before you, and you're going to have to select one of them. You have four choices. Every single one of us in this room has a choice on what we do or believe about Jesus. And then every other category falls, I mean, every other response that we have falls into one of these four. First of all, it's this. He is either a liar. That's it, straight up. He has to be a liar. And people say, well, he's a great teacher. He's a teacher that claimed to be able to forgive sins. He's a, I mean, he, I mean, he made all these boasts and he made it, he's a complete charlatan, the greatest con man in all of history. That's what he would be. If, you, need to, if you, you have a category, you can't just admire him and, and, and say that he's the Lord yet. I mean, you've got to walk through this. Is he a liar? Did what he say prove to be true? That's what we have to ask ourselves through the Word of God. Is he a liar? Now, the question is, is it, would the disciples write about Jesus if he were a liar? Would they give their life to die on his behalf if he were truly a liar? I mean, think about it. These guys walked with him for three years. Now, I tell couples that I counsel in my office, I say, I, I hope that they can date for at least a year, a year and a half. You know why? It's because a person can hide themselves who they are for a period of time. Can't do that for over, about a year is where it gets hard to do. It's going to come out eventually and how you handle different things. And these guys walked day after day with Jesus. And they didn't testify that he was a liar. Matter of fact, they all believed he was the Son of God and died for that testimony, by the way. They died proclaiming that he had resurrected from the dead. And if he was a liar, why would they die? Why would they die? So we see that that, that seems to be a faulty premise there. He the, couldn't be a liar then. I mean, why, the, the testimony of the apostles seems to validate that. This, these guys died some pretty horrible deaths. And would you die if you knew something was a lie? No. 
They had seen it, and they testified to their dying breath that he was alive, and they'd seen him. So that seems to be wanting. So let's go on to the next category then. If he's not a liar, then he must be a complete lunatic. I mean, people are like, people say this too. They're like, I like Jesus as a teacher, but not the Son of God. You got a problem because Jesus claimed to forgive sins. I mean, a good teacher doesn't proclaim crazy stuff. And it, the only way that it's not crazy if it's real, but he's got to be a guy who basically, I mean, you've met people like this. I know I have. I get calls in my office quite frequently that people say to me, um, I believe that I'm Jesus, or I believe that I'm Christ or the Antichrist. And my first reaction is, is we need to get you to the hospital right away. There's something wrong, you know? And for them, I mean, this is Jesus. He is making boastful claims. And this is why, by the way, and there are some groups that believe that Jesus was just a prophet of God, and he was only a prophet. But, you know, the Scripture does talk about him being a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. Because the reason he is not just a prophet, he foretold the future and what would happen, but he also claimed to be God, and he received worship as God, which would violate the term of a prophet. A prophet doesn't receive worship. But Jesus does, and he's more than a prophet. And the Bible presents him as a prophet, priest, and king. And he's not just a spirit that appears. He had flesh, which is why John, time and time again, shows that he ate food. He was touched. He wasn't just some spirit or ghost that appeared. That he was a living, breathing human. And John draws that out, that he's even eating fish with the disciples after his resurrection. That he had a real resurrected body. But if you don't see him as a liar, you've got to say he's got to be a complete lunatic. You can't just have him as a teacher and not take, about all he, take everything he said that he claimed to be the Son of God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. That is a complete unification with the statement from, from the book of Exodus, where he says, when uh, Moses went before the burning bush, and he said, God, what is your name, and what am I to tell your people when I go back to them? And he says, I am that I am. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he is uniting himself with that. He is showing that he himself is God. So he's not just a prophet, and he's not just a teacher, nor is he a spirit. He's claiming something altogether different. But he's either a liar, or he's a complete lunatic. Or, here's another option. Maybe he's just a legend. He's a legend. Remember that fish that you caught like 10 years ago, and it was about this big, but somehow it's gotten bigger over the years? Or maybe you're, you, know, you scored so many, like a touchdown or two, and so, somehow it got to be eight or nine. It gets bigger over the years. And maybe that's what they think about Jesus, that he's a legend. He became a legend in his own time. That The legends about him grew bigger. First, it was just Jesus doing one or two things, but then the miracles got bigger and more sensational over time. Is that what's going on? See, in this argument, Jesus didn't really claim to be God, but his followers made him that over time. Or it could have been that he didn't claim to be God, but the stories about him grew over time. But we have to examine this. His earliest followers came from what group? Jews, right? Which are, out of every other faith, especially in the ancient world, were intentionally what we call monotheistic. They believed in one God and one God alone. And so for them to have Jesus come along and say that he was a God in addition to the God would be completely ridiculous. They didn't see him as an addition to. They saw him as the exact imprint and radiance of, in likeness, God incarnate. So they didn't see him as a legend. They saw him as God himself. This is not something that they would have come up with because they knew that the, the people would have rebelled against it. 
nor would it be something that would have developed easily because none of them or those around them would have accepted it unless he truly is God, the eternal son of the triune God. But what about it simply just being legend or that it grew over time? Maybe it was like Homer's Iliad or Odyssey or maybe like Beowulf or perhaps like Lady Godiva or maybe a legend like Robin Hood. Well, C.S. Lewis, who is a great literary scholar from that period of time and was an expert in medieval literature from that time and taught at Cambridge University and Oxford University, he said this, Now as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. He says, this is different. It's a whole different ballgame. I have read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they're quite clumsy. They don't work up to things properly like a legend would. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of the Platonic dialogues, there is, nothing, there is no conversation that I know of in ancient literature like the fourth gospel. There is nothing, even in modern literature, until about 100 years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. What he's describing there, it's not a legend. Matter of fact, it was the first, the very precursor of biographies. This is how ancient it is. And he's saying it's not a legend. That option is not there because they root it in history with historical figures. As a matter of fact, outside of the Bible, do you know that Jesus is testified to from Roman historians such as Suetonius or Tacitus or the unbelieving Jewish historian Josephus who all came within a few years or a couple decades after the time of Christ and they all testify that his followers believed that Jesus was God from the very beginning, early on, and you can look at this historical, I mean, verifiable historical information from unbelievers, but they too, even the Roman emperors talked about, such as Trajan or, or Hadrian, testified about Jesus' followers who believed that Jesus was God, even from the very beginning. So he's not a legend, because legends take time to develop. And this is happening in the earliest Gospels are happening within 10, 11 years being written down when the eyewitnesses were still alive to say if it was true or not. And as we've seen, many of them died awful deaths because of it. So those are the choices you have. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, he's a legend, maybe there's one more, or he's the Lord. He's the Lord. That's the options that you have. Every single one of us, you have to make a choice. Even if you ignore it, now you've said he's a liar. So you're saying that he's not the Lord. You can't remain like Switzerland here. You can't remain unambiguous or uncommitted. You have to choose. And Jesus stands before each one of us and says, who do you say I am? And he offers the nail prints. He offers to show you through history, through the word of God, the testimony of the disciples who died on behalf of that. And he says, what do you believe and who do you believe in? That he is the Lord. That he is who he said he was. He's the Lord. And how did Thomas respond? My Lord and my God. He didn't, it wasn't, an, he, he was committed to this. He saw it. He wasn't stupid. He saw the nail prints. Jesus even offers it. Here, touch it. Go ahead your hand here on my side. See that it's me, that I am who I said I am. See, I'm here. And he cries out, oh, my Lord, my God. Isn't it amazing that Jesus would answer that challenge 
to him and respond in that way. So what do we do now? What do we do now? Let's go back to our text and see what happened to Thomas. First thing we do is look at verse 26 for a moment. I'm going to go back again. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with him. And all the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. See, there's a, we have to understand that once we come to see Jesus, there's a change that happens. There's a change that God gives. There's a change that happens in your life. There's a change that happened in my life. I mean, if you knew how I was before Jesus, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. I didn't come up here. I wasn't born a pastor. Matter of fact, it freaks out my friends when they, that I grew up with that they would ever think that I'm a pastor. That God has a sense of humor. Because God transformed me, and he can transform you. And there's a change that happens when you come to know Jesus, when you see him for who he truly is. First of all, what happens is, is there's a proof that God gives that satisfies. There's a proof that satisfies. Look at verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See, he gives proof, and he gives a proof to our own hearts. Now, we can't put our finger in the nail holes, but we can taste and see that the Lord is God. And the Scripture says that when we trust in him, that he gives us his spirit that, can, that unites with our spirit and convicts us and convinces us that Jesus is the Son of God, that something happens within us. And I'm going to highlight Deb here for a minute. And Deb and I were talking a few weeks ago, and she was talking about after she came to know the Lord and said it was difficult at first, but she goes, I, I'm at work now, and there's things that I notice that I'm saying that I shouldn't say, and I'm feeling convicted, and I, I have this desire to read now, and I don't even want to go to work. I just want to read the Bible. And it's because it's God's place, His Spirit within her, and changing her from the inside out. And that's what happens to each one of us. There's a change that God truly gives, and He gives us a proof that satisfies and then next he gives us power that strengthens. What did Jesus tell the disciples earlier? Receive the Holy Spirit. It was not the fullness of the Spirit that would come later in the book of Acts, but a down payment of sorts, a preview of what would help strengthen them and would help, help that would be the Spirit of God who testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It would power that strengthens us to help us understand. And he also gives us that a peace that sustains. What does Jesus say in verse 21 and verse 26? Peace be with you. Shalom, wholeness, peace with God and peace within ourselves. There's a peace that God gives us when we embrace him and see him for who he truly is. Which leads me to my final point. Look at Roman, look at verse 28, excuse me. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life. Life. Now, when John uses the term life, it has two understandings that, it's, that's, that, that he has in his mind. The first one is life now. That is abundant life now. That's a different lease on life, a different purpose, a different sense of being, but it also refers to eternal life. John sees him as a both and, not an either or. And we have eternal life, a guaranteed life, a greater life that is to come than the one that we experience in the here and now, removed from sorrow, removed from suffering, where every tear will be wiped away, where we will be with the Lord forever and ever, and it will be the greatest, most awesome experience that you can't even begin to fathom. 
Because that's what God has. Matter of fact, the scripture says, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, has what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even begin to fathom it. You can't see the most beautiful person on the face of the earth. And it's not even, it, not even I mean, it's like a grain of sand in comparison to the beauty and the majesty of who God is. No ear is heard. We can't even begin to fathom the notes that are going to be sung and, and hear with our, I mean, you get those tingles all over you and it'll be like that for eternity. It'll just be awesome. I mean, what is he saying here and what is he giving in this change that he gives? He's saying that I want to give you some promises to trust in. Some promises to trust in. And that promises is forgiveness of life with him. I mean, it's, it's a promise that he will not take back. You know, a few generations ago, I remember er, interacting with those of those who have now gone on with Jesus, some of that older generation. And I remember as a boy hearing one of these older men that he was a farmer, very simple man, and he said, my word is my bond, and he meant it. He meant it. And that he didn't sign a piece of paper because he said, if you don't take my word, then you don't believe me. And his, in essence, his character was tied to that phrase, that expression. In our world today, it's lost that meaning. But see, Jesus has that idea when he's saying that this is my promise to you. I will not promise and not fulfill it. That he will guarantee it. He can't go back on it. Once he has promised it, he has promised to fulfill it. So today... As we end our time here, I want to look at those words that John concluded again in the letter. Have you believed because you've seen me? Have you believed because of that? He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is this, that God himself has come to us. That he's not just a prophet. He's not just a priest. He's not some spirit. He's not some legend. He's not a lunatic. He's not a liar. But he is the Lord of glory. And what does that mean for us? What's next? It means exercising faith. If you're here today and you've not yet believed and put your faith and trust in him, here's what you need to do. Repent and believe. If you believe in Christ, you must come to him. And repentance is simply describing what coming to him looks like. The scripture is clear, and I want to show two verses to you as we finish our time. The first is this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved eternally. You will not lose it. It'll be once and for all. For with the heart one believes and is justified, declared righteous in the sight of God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Between, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then again, this truth as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. What that means is that you need to believe and receive him as Lord and Savior. Turn away from your sin and embrace him and call on the name of the Lord. And he will save, forgive, and transform you. It's that easy. But it means giving up your heart. It means giving your entirety of life. And again, he's either a liar, a lunatic, legend, or the Lord of your life. I hope he's your Lord. If you want him to have him as Lord, call on the name of the Lord, and he will save you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we rejoice that you have shown us the truth within your word through your servant, Thomas, 
And Lord, many of us are the same way. Lord, we deal with the conviction we see in other people, the cynicism in our own hearts. Lord, we see the claims that are spoken of about Christ, and yet many of us don't understand. We've come from backgrounds where maybe we didn't know anything about who God is. And Lord, you've showed within your word that you are the God who loves us and cares for us so much that you sent your son to die for us, to pay the price for our sins on the cross, that he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day to show that he was victorious over sin and death. And by believing in him and having faith in his name, we don't participate in death. Lord, that we might die physically, we don't die spiritually, but we enter into your presence where we have life forevermore. So Lord, today, if there's someone here who is still holding on to their sin, was trying to gloss over it and live their life in rebellion to you. Lord, I pray that you show the depth of your love and draw them near to yourself, to show that you've taken care of their sin by dying on the cross, just as you've taken care of each one of our sins. And Lord, please, let them call on the name of the Lord. Let them not delay. Let them not put it off. But let them see that today truly is the day of their salvation. May they call on you and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I believe that you died for me, and I receive you as Lord and Savior of my life. Thank you for that. May it be that simple, Lord. Transform us. Draw us near to yourself and glorify your name in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.